But anytime physicality is mentioned in the book of Proverbs, like an attractive woman or a beautiful woman, that woman is dangerous. And that's woman folly. That's the opposite of wisdom. And if you see a woman who's really sexy or beautiful, that means you're moving in the wrong direction. And I think that using those archetypes has an impact on how understandings of gender develop over the centuries, over the millennia, so that we see the birth of the archetype of the dangerous, sexy woman in the Bible. And yet... The author of the Song of Songs doesn't seem to be no. caught up in that no. fear. It's a redemption. That book is a redemption. I always save the Song of Songs for my last class period with my students because they've been through hell all term reading stories about rape and about kidnapping and suffering and lack of agency. And then they read Song of Songs where it's this a man and a woman. She sp- speaks more than he does in the book just loving each other completely and describing each other and their beauty and it's clearly a sexual relationship and there's no judgment and how the hell did that get in there? Hi, I'm Dan. I'm B. And this is God for Grownups. B is now my number one guest on the podcast and she has a question. Yeah, so tonight we're going to be talking about women in the Bible, and the reason we're on this topic has something to do with Mother's Day. Uh, After Mother's Day, Dan texted me and said, hey, can we do an episode on women in the Bible and Mother's Day? So I want to turn it back to you, Dan, and see what it was about that day that tweaked a connection for you. Well, it was actually the Bible text or the the readings for the day uh, at church. There was a conversation online that I had with some of my parishioners about uh, the sermon that I preached, and I brought up in the sermon a certain passage that really struck one of the members of the congregation, and it was Acts 18, where a woman named Priscilla and Aquila confront a man named Apollos, and they, uh, they instruct Apollos on uh, the meaning of the way. So it's chapter 18, verse 24. Now there came to Ephesus a Jew named Apollos, a native, a native of Alexandria. He was an eloquent man, as am I, <laughs> well-versed in the scriptures, also like me. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. I was doing a sermon comparing the way of the Mandalorian with the way of Jesus right, Christ. Right, I remember. Okay. And he spoke with burning enthusiasm and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John, which is to say he knew the baptism of repentance, but he didn't know the way of Jesus entirely, or at all, perhaps. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, now they appear elsewhere in the New Testament, and the order of of the names is important. It suggests that Priscilla was actually in charge and uh, and that this is a married couple who probably ran a house church. Mm-hmm. That's really uh, fascinating. Uh, they heard him. They took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. And what one of my parishioners pointed out, she was raised in the Southern Baptist tradition. She said, that is so liberating to hear as a woman raised in a conservative mm. Christian church, because in conservative churches, First Timothy is often uh, used to justify the exclusion of women from leadership roles, including the role of uh, clergy. So First Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, 
Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man or authority over a man. She is to keep silent. When I, um, I was teaching an adult education class and uh, one of the guys got me a t-shirt with that verse on it. Anyway. Perfect. I, uh, that's, that's perfect. Anyway, what, what this text showed her, and it kind of blew me away on Mother's Day, is that here, in fact, in the early church was a woman who was teaching a man. Mm-hmm. And it's right there in the Bible. And I've never, ever heard anyone appeal to it or mm. preach on it, which I think is very telling. Mm-hmm. I'm often told uh, that, well, I'm not often told, but I often hear people say that if you're not a Bible-believing Christian, you just cherry-pick scripture. And I think to myself, well, no, uh, left or right, liberal or conservative, we all read the Bible selectively. Mm-hmm. And I guess the difference is if you know what's driving the interpretation, that's always really helpful. But in this case, I think it's important to recognize that there was this woman who had a very significant leadership role and that, in fact, it contradicts First Timothy, which was written toward the end of the first century by a disciple of Paul who was trying to, uh, to build up a kind of patriarchy in response to uh, the anxiety male leadership had over women in leadership roles. Are people not as comfortable with inconsistency or contradiction in the New Testament as we are in the Hebrew Bible? That's the big difference. Okay. I almost went there with my sermon this last Sunday that uh, we often feel, I think, that when we see contradictions in the Bible, our job is to reconcile them. Or to, or if we can't, to say, well, they must, they must be consistent at some deeper level. But as you said uh, recently in a class that I attended, consistency is for pudding, not religion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's... My mom, when she went, she went to Capital Lutheran College or Capital University, I think. Capital, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and she actually had to take a class there called Synchronizing the Gospels, where the purpose of the class was to demonstrate how the Gospels are not contradictory in any way. They obviously don't offer that class anymore, but it's funny because um, in the world of scholarship in the Hebrew Bible and even the Jewish world, um, you come across contradiction, discrepancies, and um, you don't find a the same kind of resistance, although you have a history of, uh, in terms of Jewish hermeneutics and the history of Jewish interpretation of the Bible, of trying to make the inconsistencies consistent, but it is usually the case that what they come up with is um, hilarious and out of the possibilities, outside the possibilities. Um, but no, that's really interesting. Bernadette Bruton, um, in the 80s, I think, um, published on and, and has published more than once about how women in um, the early synagogue had positions of leadership based on uh, evidence that we have from inscriptions and whatnot. Not what's in text, but the inscriptions, that they were heads of synagogues, um, that they were business leaders, that they were public leaders. They had all these roles that would not be reflected in the text that we have. And actually, a big question that comes up frequently in Jewish studies and text studies is how much does the text we're looking at reflect the real lived experience of the people at the time? And Seth Schwartz, for example, thinks that rabbinic text in particular does not represent how most people lived, that the rabbis were over here writing their thing. Nobody cared. I've heard that too about Christian theologians, yeah. that that they are writing uh away and apart from the, the broader populace. Right. I think the exception there would be someone like, Believe it or not, St. Augustine, who was apparently renowned for his preaching, 
Uh, Martin Luther would be another exception who was uh, quite popular among among the the broader um, German people. But but yeah. So when you talked about how there was a um, a time where consistency was sought, and I'm curious, is that something that happened in the Middle Ages? Is it consistent no, well. with? <laughs> I mean, is there an? I'm wondering if the because in the Middle Ages in the Christian tradition you have this uh, attempt to synthesize biblical texts, sure, uh, and that's prevalent in the Middle Ages. So it's all around what we mean by the word consistency. Okay, and I know that that sounds like a silly trick, dirty trick, but I mean that the fact that Moses goes up the mountain what nine times and comes down once, like these sorts of things. The ancient interpreters, the rabbis, believed that when we come up against something that doesn't make sense to us or is inconsistent, it's an opportunity for us to get creative in our interpretation, and God made it that way. And so we get creative in our interpretation to make sense out of the ways that um, the text doesn't appear to cohere, but the solutions are not what you and I would look at and say are solutions to an inconsistency. We would not say that this actually makes sense in terms of modern views. Okay, Give us an example. Give an example. Yeah. All right. So Genesis 1, famous example. So I'm sorry if I'm boring. This may, so Origen of Alexandria, a Christian theologian uh, who died, I think, in 254, he uh, was in conversation with the rabbis. Yeah. And he says the same thing. He says that God put the contradictions yeah. in Scripture to occasion a deeper understanding. Yes. Yes, and, and more creative. And, the, yeah. and it's true that the rabbis would look at this problem in this text, and they would look at that verse in a completely other book to try to make sense out of it. And mm -hmm. in that way, they're making the whole thing consistent. But again, it's not mm. our definition. Okay, so Genesis 1, humanity is created male and female at the same time. Genesis 2, God creates stuff, creates a person. I'm going to use my language carefully. A person to be a gardener puts the person in the garden, and realizes the person is lonely, makes all the animals, didn't work for the person. There's a really interesting backstory there, according to some of the rabbis. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, he had, he had sex with all the animals, and none right. of them felt right. Yeah, yes. tried them out, and so God <laughs> yeah. needed to make a suitable companion. A, right? a suitable companion, and so God made this woman. And when this person wakes up, that person says, oh, I'm a man because you're a woman, and, and it's relation here that makes me who I am. The rabbis read that and they said, why is it male and female at the same time here? And then we have this other story here. Surely it's not a contradiction. God makes no mistakes. Do you know this story? No, oh. but I'm, I'm, I'm uh, on the edge of my seat. I oh want to hear gosh. what happens. So they actually had several solutions because it's never just one. But the one I want to highlight has to do with a figure named Lilith. And... The Lilin were these demons referenced in the Bible. Book of Enoch, right? Well, yeah, and also but, Isaiah makes reference. Okay, and, yeah. Um, but they said, ah, when they were made male and female at the same time, it was Adam and Lilith. But Lilith refused to be subordinate because she was made at the same time as Adam. So she wouldn't do what he wanted. Wow. And she wouldn't even have sex the way he wants. And so she eventually left the garden. They, they highlighted that. Do you think Adam's uh, understanding of what he wanted for sex was maybe skewed by the fact that he tried it with other animals? <laughs> that was later. <laughs> that was later. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. It's hard to, no, hard to get these events in, in order. Okay. I know. I know. So she left the garden 
and Adam got really sad, and God sent angels after Lilith to get her to come back. And, and she didn't come back? You know, well, they, they said, you should come back, and she essentially said, hell no. No, that guy's a butt. And so they went back, and the gist of it is that Adam said, that one didn't work, can you make me another one? And so God made Eve. Wow. And Eve was appropriately subordinate and modest. That's what they said. Except for the text where they say Eve was not subordinate and modest. See, the rabbis didn't care about these contradictions, but they wanted to explain a problem at a time. So while they're making things consistent, they're actually making it less consistent. Does this make sense? It does. I want to play. Can I play? What do you want to play with? I want to I want to offer something. Okay. Yeah, so the very text that I was reading from 1 Timothy chapter 2 mm-hmm. verses 11 and following verse 14, 13 rather, for Adam was formed first. So this is the justification for why a woman <laughs> should be subordinate, oh, right? I love this. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing provided they continue in faith and love and holiness. With modesty. So Eve, apparently, according to this interpretation, is the transgressor. And yet, if you go back to Romans chapter 5, which scholars unanimously think was written by Paul, whereas the, quote, the, the quotation that I uh, used is drawn from a writing written later in the first century that many scholars think was written by a disciple of Paul's, not by Paul himself. Paul says in Romans 5, 12, therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned, sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned when there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. So the authentic Paul, uh, uh, the, the author of Romans, attributes the transgression to Adam, the so-called Deuteropauline author of First Timothy, the the second Paul, that's what I guess Deutero means. Second, right? Like yeah. Deuteronomy, yeah, yeah. second law, right? Right, right. Deuteroisia. So uh so the second Paul in First Timothy attributes the the transgression to Eve, and the idea is that the Deuteropauline author uh, did so because of anxiety. He and other leaders of the late first century increasingly male-dominated leadership of the church were having about women who were occupied leadership roles. So, and it's interesting because Genesis 3, for listeners um, who might not have read it recently, um, is the story of Adam and Eve and a garden and a serpent and a piece of fruit and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what actually happens in the chapter, in the text itself, is complicated when it comes to questions of blame and when people want to assign blame in that particular story, they end up having to make hermeneutical choices that are not universally defensible. What are hermeneutical choices? What do you mean? Um, well, they make a choice to interpret in a particular way, like it's Eve's fault or it's Adam's fault. And the text itself doesn't necessarily let you uh, sustain those choices. If you pay close attention to the text in Genesis 3, you are less likely to have those very um, definitive statements that you find in uh, Paul and in Timothy, in Romans and Timothy. So it's a lot harder to to pin responsibility I think so. on. So Paul, it's interesting. So Paul uses the word Adam, which I understand in Hebrew means humanity, 
right? Well, it Or red depends. clay or... Yeah. The word Adam is related to red. It does mean human. It also means humanity is sort of a collective... Um, a collective singular, but it also depends if it has the definite article in front of it. And the definite article in Hebrew is ha, and when it says ha-adam, you can't translate it as Adam. You can't. You have to translate it as the earthling the or human, the human. Or even humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the earthling is my favorite one, right. of course. But The earthling. I know it sounds yeah. like an, an alien. It totally does. <laughs> I love it. Well, what is it? It's the being made out of earth. I, I think that's how Paul is using it, though. I think he's using it universally. So humans are responsible yes. for the sin. Yeah. Whereas um, in Timothy, there's the isolation specifically to the woman. That's interesting. Well, and in Genesis 3, the word sin doesn't appear. Right. It appears in Genesis 4. It's right. lurking behind the door. It correct? is. It's crouching, oh, waiting for you. It. But you can be its yeah. master. In the story of Cain and Abel, that's the first named sin. Don't you think that that's such an insightful way of talking about this tendency in human, oh, yeah. human life? Right. That it's, but you can be its master. It says it's crouching at the door. It's waiting for you, but you can be its master. And that's where you and Paul differ because yeah. Paul thinks sin overtook not only uh, humanity, but the entire cosmos and subjected it to its, to its bondage. I know. And so the last Adam or the new Adam is the, is the one who comes to liberate not only human beings, but the cosmos from the power of sin. It's if Paul were referencing like the persons, the people, they're the ones responsible for sin, that is more egalitarian. Um, and it is certainly true that religious traditions have developed that place so much blame on Eve that they end up really denigrating women in general, and women have lesser roles, and women aren't to be trusted. And there's certainly plenty of stuff in the Hebrew Bible, the archetype of the dangerous woman, a woman who will lead you astray, especially if she's beautiful and sexy, then you know she's the highway to hell. And that's something you hear a lot, right, Proverbs, right? Yeah. yeah. But what about in Proverbs, the way that Sophia is depicted? Does that provide a kind of uh, It's interesting, yeah. To- so in the book of Proverbs, I'm just filling things in um, here. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom is female. Wisdom is a, itself, chokhmah, a feminine word. So is Torah, and who gets access to Torah? Anyway. Um, chokhmah and Shekinah, too, is and female, Shekinah right? is feminine, yeah. yeah. Which means the divine presence, right? Right. Okay. Which comes to be understood as a particular kind of divine presence. It's the mother love that comes from God, mm-hmm. the eminence. But um, wisdom is a very positive figure. If you pay attention to how she is described and how she describes herself, uh, she sounds almost like a goddess. Um, she's there in chapter eight at the beginning of all of creation. And um, she was God's confidant throughout the creation process. Um, but you also notice that wisdom is described as um, someone to whom people should cleave, men should cleave, and she'll lead to life and she'll lead to well-being. Um, but anytime physicality is mentioned in the book of Proverbs, like an attractive woman or a beautiful woman, that woman is dangerous. And that's woman folly. That's the opposite of wisdom. If you see a woman who's really sexy or beautiful, that means you're moving in the wrong direction. And I think that using those archetypes has an impact on readers, has an impact on how understandings of gender develop over the centuries, over the millennia, so that we see the birth of the archetype of the dangerous, sexy woman in the Bible. And yet the author of the Song of Songs doesn't seem to be caught up in that fear. It's a redemption 
that book is a redemption. I always save the Song of Songs for my last class period with my students because they've been through hell all term reading stories about rape and about kidnapping and suffering and lack of agency. And then they read Song of Songs where it's this a man and a woman. She sp- speaks more than he does in the book just loving each other completely and describing each other and their beauty. And it's clearly a sexual relationship and there's no judgment. And how the hell did that get in there? And that's one of two texts in the whole Hebrew Bible that never mentions God, correct? Correct. Why do you think that is in the Song of Songs? Well, the you asked me what I think, but uh-huh. the, the rabbis decided it's because it's an allegory. Right, and for God's Christian relationship with Israel, right. uh, origin and the Christian tradition mm-hmm. uh, interprets it, as do others, as the relationship between Christ and, and the church. Right. I'm troubled by making it into an allegory <laughs> because it, it robs it. Right. right. I don't know, but Rabbi Akiva in the Mishnah said that he considered it to be the most sacred book in the Bible. Why do I think it's in there? Yeah. I don't know, but I have to, maybe some little glimmering of hope that we have the capacity of envisioning intersubjective, passionate relationships. And egalitarian relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's what I find so striking about the couple of um, Priscilla and Aquila in the New Testament, that they provide, I would like to think they could provide the kind of archetype, as you said, Mm -hmm. for egalitarian relationship in my tradition uh, in Christ. Yeah. And I guess what you asked why earlier, why, why was this such an important topic on Mother's Day? And of course, the, the fact that it was Mother's Day provides a kind of nice background for this. But it was really because this particular person in my congregation helped me discover in this text something that I had never seen before. That, isn't that wonderful? It is. I, I, it makes me grateful to be a pastor and to learn from my congregation. So can we go back to Genesis for a second? Of course we can. All right. So what's really interesting about Genesis is that when you look at the way Origen did the same thing as the rabbis do, I'm really beginning to see how much he was influenced by the by the rabbis. And what he argued was that, okay, you've got, uh, the like the rabbis un, uh, recognized, the, the order of creation is different, right? Right. So in, in the first creation story, Genesis 1 to, I think it's 2-4, you have uh, God creates essentially uh, rock, vegetable, animal, human being, right? And water is started water at the beginning, but yeah. and light and all that yeah. kind of stuff, right? But it's uh, it's basically uh, inanimate objects first, then vegetation, then animals, and then human beings, right? And human beings simultaneously, male and female, right. God created them. Then you get to Genesis, which has what is it? Genesis uh, two. Genesis 2, and you've got Adam, the garden. Well, you've got, there's a planet. Planet. Nothing's growing because there's no human. Right. So human. Human. Garden. Garden. Woman. Um, garden. Animals. Animals. Woman. Woman. Right. Yes. So the order of creation is very different, and I've heard people say, well, that's because Genesis 1 is a general account of creation, and Genesis 2 is a specific account. Really? But I find that hugely problematic. <laughs> who says I think that? Uh, uh, Christian fundamentalists. Oh yeah, who who really have this need to reconcile that yeah. I think is is actually borderline. If well, it's totally neurotic. 
I mean, it yeah. let the texts be different. I, I think if you can, if you're hanging your faith on something that can be delivered a mortal blow by the work of the intellect, your faith is in need of reevaluation. Well, and you used the word hermeneutical earlier. Yeah. Fundamentalists make a, a hermeneutical claim about scripture that I think corrupts the way that re- they read scripture. Oh, yeah. They think that scripture following 2 Timothy 3.16 was God-breathed, which they mean, they think means divinely dictated that right. God is, uh, that the writers of scripture as John Calvin in the 16th century put it, were God's holy secretaries and that basically God whispered into their ear. And so if it comes from God, it can't contradict. Right, God right. is not a liar. We often hear, right. but that text, it's first Except of all, in Genesis three, go ahead. Right. And that text is probably, I mean, I, I actually <laughs> yeah. enumerate four reasons for why Second Timothy three sixteen is problematic. Right. Uh, the last of which is you're using the Bible to prove the Bible is true. That's called circular reasoning. Yeah. But even before that, the author, when the author says all Scripture is God breathed, there's no is in the original Greek, so it could be translated all Scripture which is God breathed. Yeah. So that opens things up. What the author meant by Scripture at the end of the first century is not what most people think of as Scripture now. It's certainly not the Christian Bible. Uh, it's two thirds of the, what we would call the old Testament, right? The law and the prophets by the end of the first century. Well, and, and actually the, the canonization process was a lot less clear and a lot more drawn out and more complicated than we think. So who knows what they thought they were referring to at any given moment. But they, the, this author certainly could have been not been referring to the new Testament because the new Testament, the writings that we have in it Mm -hmm. weren't canonized until the fourth century. Mm -hmm. So anyway, going back to origin, he looks at Genesis one through three and he says, all right, we've got two accounts of creation. The orders of creation are different. The first, and he's reading this through a platonic lens, which is to say the philosophy of Plato Plato is the one who imagined a two-tiered universe, a kind of uh, disembodied realm of pure ideas that became manifest in a material realm. Thank you, Plato, for leading to a millennia-long devaluation of the female form. Go right ahead. Totally, right? (laughs) I mean, yeah. So, I mean, it it not only devalues matter, but of course, woman is identified with matter. matter. So you have a gender dualism. Rosemary Ruther talks about this. And and so anyway, Origen says is, well, clearly, (laughs) I love this. Mm -hmm. The first account is the spiritual account, the spiritual world. Sure, sure. This is the the pure world of ideas that God that God created first. And the second account is the material world, the embodiment of those spiritual ideas. And he says, and this is actually, I don't agree with it, but it's quite brilliant. He says that when Adam and Eve put on put on the animal skins after they've become aware that they're naked, he says what that really means at a deeper level is the soul putting on materiality. So actually that's interesting because they didn't, they put on fig leaves they, they, uh, and then God made them leather clothing ah, and they put on the leather clothing because mm. God was like, you're going to need a heavier jacket. God, the Jewish mother before you I leave. Know, though. Um, and so it's an act of love. So I love it when people are like, God was mad. So he ejected them from the garden. I'm like, he made them clothing first. Anyway, um, and I have I'm another saying, parishioner who recognized that. It blew me away, too. That's, that's a really neat image of God. I, I like it. And by the way, I'm using the word he because of how the text presents it. I'm not making a normative claim about he. But um, one of my favorite things that happens uh, in Jewish interpretation and also one of my least favorite things. One of my favorite things is when they look at these inconsistencies and draw a lesson from it that does not make the text more consistent. 
but shows their desire to have something from it. So Genesis 1 and 2, they said you should always remember that you were created last and you were created first. You should always remember that the world was created for you and you were created to to serve the world. And you should carry these completely opposing views of yourself always. You sh- they say you should always remind, your- remind yourself, the world was created for me and I am only dust and ashes. Wow. And for them, the two creation stories are supposed to teach you that. What I don't like about the rabbis is that more often than not, they'll take a woman in the Bible whose context and whose story um, can be more meaningful for contemporary readers and just infuse it with patriarchy and misogyny. So, for example, Hagar. She is a, a character in Genesis who gets little to no agency, Sarah hands her off to Abraham to have a child because Sarah's infertile. She runs away twice. Well, she runs away once, and then Abraham sends her and Ishmael away once. But there are some amazing things about Hagar. She is the only person in the Bible to give God a name. And what she, name does she give God? Elroi, the God who sees me. Wow, what a name. And then she also receives an annunciation Men get the annunciations. She receives an annunciation. You're going to have a son. This is going to be his name. This is what he's going to be like. I mean, Samson's mother has the same experience, but it's really rare for a woman to have that experience. Anyway, but no, the rabbis turn her into a villain because they can't cope with how difficult her life is. But what an, it's another glimmer, though. The God who sees me, yeah. what a powerful way of, of affirming the experience of a woman before God. Oh, absolutely. God finds her and... It's like she gets a voice momentarily. She does. And the rabbis try to cover it up. They they don't like they don't like it when good people suffer and the wicked prosper, and so they change stories. So for the benefit of those listening, who are these rabbis and oh, when right. do they live? Sorry, I spend a lot of time with the rabbis, and so I talk about them a lot. Um, these are writers from the late biblical period. I date it up till the 9th or 10th century based on the Midrash to Jonah, which is one of the later works. And so the 9th or 10th century of the Common Era? Yeah. So, okay. yeah, that's a long time. Yeah. Um, although some people would date them only to the 6th or 7th, that's based on the dating of the Talmud. So you should know there are discussions about the dates. At any rate... Um, they were scholars. They knew the text completely, innately, deeply. They basically had it memorized. And they spent their time reading scripture and interpreting it and writing down the interpretations. And then they interpreted the interpretations. And then the layers develop. And some of their work is about the law. A lot of the work is about what do we, how do we live the way God wants us to? How do we make our choices? This is called halakha or Jewish law. And some of it is like, why are there two creation stories? Or what was Abraham like as a kid? Or why did Pharaoh let Moses just move on into the palace when Pharaoh was trying to kill all the Hebrew baby boys, right? And that's called Agadah. It's exegetical. They created a massive corpus of literature. Massive. I will never get through all of it. And they were brilliant and maddening and had a completely different way of thinking than we do. And Dan, you can testify that since I began studying rabbinic literature, I have become a less and less linear person. Yes, you have. You yes. have become a master in affiliative reasoning, well, as they call it. Because that's how they thought. So, Michael, you're, so you're an expert in Hebrew Bible and its subsequent uh, interpretive history. Do you think that, is this something that most rabbis uh, today, are they, are they 
pretty well familiar with the tradition? And, yes. And do they tend to read the texts through these, yes. these subsequent interpreters? Yes. Huh. I feel like I'm blessed that I, I was on the faculty at a rabbinical school until it was necessary to leave Los Angeles. Um, and I loved it. And I'm friends with many rabbis, and I love many rabbis, and I love my rabbis. And absolutely, when they are engaging in text study, teaching, when they're writing sermons, they're in this whole world, the rabbi, scholarship, everything. I have a friend who called me one time before Yom Kippur. He was like, can you run through source criticism with me one through one more time? Because I'm teaching this text, and I need to make sure I don't screw it up. So yeah, it's definitely a part of it. That's really Do you great. think that many ministers know origin? I think it depends on the denomination. Okay. I think in the in the Reformation period, you have uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin who were more sympathetic to, in some cases, to sub to. They recognized that tradition is important insofar as it helps us interpret Scripture. Scripture is the source, okay, but tradition provides us with an opportunity to read the source. So, for example. Martin Luther, for better or worse, identified St. Augustine as the Apostle Paul's most trustworthy interpreter and relied to some degree on, mm -hmm. on Augustine's uh, views of Paul, or at least they confirm Luther's, Luther's reading. But once you get past the classical Protestant reformers, uh, you have a group of Protestants, the so-called radical reformers, who were either indifferent or in some cases averse to tradition. Hmm. They felt that tradition had corrupted the proper reading of Scripture, and the task of the, of the Christian was to go back, as Luther felt too, influenced by Renaissance humanism, to go back ad fontis in Latin, which is to the sources, or to the source. Mm -hmm. And so I think today in America especially, a lot of people unknowingly belong to the lineage of the of the radical reformers of the Reformation period. Mm. There are people who are either indifferent to or uh, suspicious of or even condemning of the interpretive tradition that 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 followed. In the first through the seventh century, I think the, that's the correct dates. You have uh, the the so-called patristics, the fathers right. of the church, right. who provided uh, commentaries. Mm -hmm. And so, what's interesting is that uh, you know, alongside the Jewish tract of interpretation, tract of interpretation, you have a Christian tract of interpretation. Right. What I find so interesting, talk about a woman in the Bible, is that from the first to the seventh century, not a single Christian commentator wrote anything about Esther. Yeah, and Esther is not quoted by a single New Testament author, and we have 27 books in the New Testament. Right. So just coming back as we as we near the, the conclusion of this conversation, it strikes me that when it comes to women in the Bible, obviously they have not given they have not been given a fair shake in the in at least in the Christian tradition, and it also sounds like in the rabbinical tradition as well. The rabbinical tradition, although then they have amazing moments where they subvert their own patriarchy, I got to say, where they include stories about or experiences of women that completely flummox them, and they include them anyway. But um, feminism made a significant entryway into Judaism as it was unfolding. Second wave feminism moved into Judaism 
I would say pretty easily. And, um, and second wave feminism is, um, the feminism of the sixties and seventies where uh, really, I always date the beginning of this movement to the publication of the feminine mystique by Betty Friedan and her sort of unveiling the real lived experience of women that are doing these like perfect stay at home mom always look great house is perfect you know picket fence whatever and how they were suffering and then the the lids blown off and now women are talking about their true experiences and there's anger and there's pain and um, these things are coming out and it it moved into judaism and then in 1980 judith plaskow published a book called standing again and get standing again at sinai about how she can't be a feminist in the world and a Jew in the synagogue. She is a feminist Jew everywhere she goes, and we got to figure out how to do feminism in Judaism. And here are some things we should be doing. And around that time, you have the first woman being ordained. Anyway, outside of orthodoxy, Judaism is quite feminist. Outside of orthodoxy. And so women's stories, women's voices, conversations about gender, these things are definitely present. So that's true in the reform, conservative, and reconstructionist traditions? Yeah, and all of the traditions that don't want to tell you where they are on the spectrum and, and uh, you know, humanistic, secular Judaism and all of that. But in orthodoxy, there there's this push towards thinking that way. They've ordained a couple of women. There's a movement to accept the reality of lesbian and gay transgender in people orthodox in Judaism. orthodox Judaism, but ultra orthodoxy, the Westboro Baptist church. No, no way. No. Yeah. I didn't know that about Judith Plaskow. She wrote a great um, book on Reinhold Niebuhr and Paul Tillich, Christian theologians uh, called sex, sin and grace. She was the first woman to get a PhD in theology from Yale. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. She's incredible. Remarkable. Yeah. I guess my final question for you is we've talked about Eve and we've talked about Lilith and we've talked about Priscilla and we've talked about Esther. But there's one woman who uh, whose name I think also appears in the Bible. And isn't that Leah? As in Princess Leah? There is. There it is. There's the moment, though. She's got, I know, there always has to, she's got either weak eyes or tender eyes. I don't know. Her sister's really hot. Who is this Leah? Isn't there a Leah in the Hebrew Bible? Yeah, it's it's one of Jacob's wives. Okay. Her sister's name, Rachel. Jacob sees Rachel after having fled from his brother Esau, who wanted to kill him. He sees Rachel, and it's love at first sight, and he commits an act of great physical strength, and then he kisses Rachel, and then he cries, and he says to Rachel's father, I'll do anything to have her, and he works for seven years, and... On the night of their wedding, her father, Laban, sneaks in Rachel's sister, Leah, so that he marries Leah. Oh, But there's a veil, and he wakes up the next morning, and it's Leah, and he's like, what the hell? And he goes to Laban. He says, I can't marry off the younger before the older. Wait a week, and you can have the next one, and then you have to work for seven more years. But Leah spent her life, she was very fertile, and every time she had a son, she was like, maybe now he'll love me. Oh, no. Yeah. And Rachel was infertile. Until God interceded and she died after giving birth to their second son. Oh, that's tragic. You know, the stories are... Brutal. I love it when people say they read scripture for inspiration. I'm like, <laughs> what part? I know, even if you read the Psalms, like I, <laughs> I know. you and I differ on this. I, I love the Psalms, but, but it's hard sometimes to read them for inspiration. In fact, I find the Psalms remarkable because... The psalmist is somebody who I feel walks with me when I'm not feeling good. Right. I mean, I, I've, I've come to believe that even if you find uh, that it doesn't feel like God is with you, that God is walking with you, you know at least that the psalmist uh, 2,500, 3,000 years ago was. Got it, yeah. You know? The majority of the psalms are laments. 
Right. And that clearly serves a purpose for human beings to have that voice, to have that thing that they can chant or read that says, oh, this is a really long-standing human experience and I'm not alone. So, yeah. If you ever want to talk about um, women in the Bible whose sole purpose and worth was based on their ability to have children, we can do that as well. That sounds like another episode. That sounds fun. As for this one, I think it's been a, it's been really enjoyable. Thank so you. Thanks for being here, and thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye, everybody.